Good morning, church family. It's good to be together. Happy Mother's Day. Show of hands, the mothers in the room. Wow. Praise God. Uh, welcome, who's in attendance, welcome online. And uh, while I thank you for your praise, it's all about Christ. And so let's diminish us and maximize him this morning through the reading and the preaching and the hearing of God's holy and precious word. So welcome, church family, a special welcome to all mothers here online. I think my mother may even be watching. So if that's the case, happy Mother's Day to you. Happy Mother's Day to Dawn. She sends her greetings and her love. Uh, I am far lesser without her beside me, uh, but very thankful for her tremendous love and care for our four precious children. And uh, this week we are in the book of John. When I was with you last, we spent two times in the book of John. And you may recall I talked a lot about the hour. My hour has not yet come. This morning, the hour has come. So we're going to turn to the book of John 13, and we're going to spend a lot of time in God's word and hopefully very little time in my words. So when deciding on the best way to serve you this morning as a pastor... I realize that the best gift I could ever give you is not my words, not my presence, but the presence of Jesus Christ. And so, to that end, I thought, wouldn't it be fun to get together and gaze upon Christ? And therefore, we're going to enter into the upper room. And this is the hour that Jesus says that his hour has come. Let me ask you a question. We have some younger people in attendance. We have some older people in attendance. If I asked you this question, if you could have dinner with any person or persons, who would it be? When would it be? And why would it be? So I want you to think about that for a second. So if you could have dinner with any person, who would it be? When would it be? And why would it be? Thought about some answers. Potentially, some of you might be thinking things that are sanctified. Others may be less sanctified. For example, you might be thinking, wouldn't it be wonderful to have a dinner with some heroes of the Christian faith? The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, maybe Elizabeth Elliot. Wouldn't that be fun? Wouldn't it be fun to learn from them, to listen to them, to walk beside them in a sense at dinner and just hear more of their story and service to our Lord. Or perhaps maybe you would like to have dinner with a relative that's passed. Maybe somebody you love dearly. Just ask them a few more questions. Be with them a little longer. That would be special. For the younger ones here or maybe watching online, maybe it's a superhero. Maybe it's a somebody that's fictitional. I'm going to guard us from that, though, because I want us to think about a real person in a real time, in a real situation. See, a lot of people think of Christ as fictitional. 
but he's not. The person I would choose to have dinner with, which is probably the obvious answer to my question, is Jesus. But it actually wouldn't just be Jesus. It would be Jesus and his disciples. And the when it would be, would be in the upper room. And the reason why it would be is because we would be able to understand with clarity what Jesus came to do and maybe peer not only at our Savior, but maybe peer at ourselves in the midst of it so that our lives are conformed and transformed by Christ. And to that end, we're going to go into the book of John 13. So that's my answer. Maybe you think it's a good one. Maybe you don't. But this is the night. This is the very night that Jesus Christ turns to his disciples and says, this is the time. So here's the scene. They're going to the upper room. You remember the story. It's paralleled in the book of Luke, and we'll, we'll jump into this. And Jesus has the upper room prepared for them. He knew what was going to happen, but his disciples had absolutely no idea what was happening. They thought it was another Passover meal with Christ. But what they didn't know is within 24 hours, he would be not only betrayed, that he would die, that he would be on a cross, and that he would become their Passover lamb for them. And by extension for us this morning, that's the scene. Have you heard the axiom, live like you were dying? Jesus lived the entire life knowing he was dying. But here we are, and within hours, there's going to be a betrayal. And Jesus, this night, the very last supper, decides to slow things down and have a meal that we will never forget. You know the story but I hope you'd learn to love it deeper as a result of our time in it this morning. So knowing his hour had come, what did Jesus say? What did Jesus do? What were his actions? I would argue that his actions were actually louder than his words. Truly the heart of the Savior, Jesus Christ, was on full display this night. And when we enter this portion of Scripture in John's Gospel, we need to pay very close attention to what Jesus does, what Jesus says, and how he says it, and how he does it. So what does Jesus say? What does Jesus do, knowing that his time is short? Let's look into God's holy, precious, inspired word. I'm actually going to ask you to stand up again. This is God's word. So if you would be kind enough to stand, if you're able, and we're going to read John 13, verses 1 through 20. I'll be reading to you from the LSV. You may have a different version, but it should be fairly close. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and he laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he tied it around himself. 
And then he poured the water into the wash basin. And he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which he had tied around himself. And so he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not realize now, but you will understand afterwards. And Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet, ever. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Don't you love Peter? Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew that the one who was betraying him. And for this reason, he said, Not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garment and reclined again at the table, he said to them, Do you know what I've done for you or to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so am I. If I then, the Lord, and your teacher, or the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak about all of you. I know the ones that I have chosen, but the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it occurs so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives anyone I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are your servants. We want to know you more. We want to love you deeper. We are thankful for your word that guides, that instructs. I pray this morning that you quiet our distracted thoughts, that you quicken our hearts to be ready to worship you through the hearing of your word, through the proclamation of your word, through the singing of your word. What you wish us to learn from your text, please teach us. And what sins and which offenses we bring before you this morning, please convict us. Lord, what we need to apply in our lives from your word Please instruct us. It's in the precious, holy, and precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who we long to worship this morning. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. So we are in the upper room. Here's the big idea the way up is down. The way up is down. When we descend low, we need to remember that our Lord descended further down for us while we were still sinners. The structure of the sermon is fairly easy to follow. It's context, knowledge, humility, cleansing in two parts and applying. And so if you're a note taker, we'll start in the backwards to go forwards. 
We need to look at the context so that we can understand what happened before in this time so that we can understand how to go forward into our time. To that end, let's look at some context. In ancient Israel, now I don't know if anybody's wearing sandals today. There's a few. Okay, I don't see anybody without shoes. Thank you. Uh, So in ancient Israel, uh, the mode of operation was foot and the uh, attire of the foot was the sandal. And so the roads are dusty. It's probably like here a little bit in the summer in some of the areas in the canyon. And uh, the feet were pretty dirty. And so one of the things that we don't really maybe understand is while it was commonplace to have dirty feet, it was not commonplace to bring the dirty feet inside. And so the job of the host of the house or the master of the house was to have somebody that would clean the feet of those that would enter into the house. Typically, this was the role of a servant. Now, what you may not know is the Jewish servants were not allowed to wash the feet of others. It was the role of a Gentile servant, a non-Jew. And so here we have a scene in the upper room, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but their feet washing ceremony doesn't happen at the beginning. It happens during the time where they're already reclined. And so, today in North America, we do not understand this context. In colder locations like Canada, where I'm from, you don't wear shoes in people's homes. I don't know if you know that. So when you walk into a home, it is not common in colder climates. In Asian countries, if you've ever been to them, in fact, not only is it culturally unacceptable to wear your shoes into the house, but traditionally what happens is you are provided with slippers. And so here we have a scene where the Lord Jesus and his disciples in a room that has been prepared for them, key point, their feet are still dirty. And the disciples didn't wash Jesus' feet. So the fact that they were dirty coming into this room is very, very, very important. And Jesus, during the meal, is going to shock the system. Let's look to the passage. 13 verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. The knowledge theme is what I want to pick up in this verse for you. Knowing or knowledge is mentioned seven times in 20 verses. The knowing, the knowing, the knowing is going to be repeated again and again, rhythmically. Jesus keeps saying, he knows, but they don't know. He knows, but they don't know. Jesus' knowledge is firm. Look with me to verse 1, scan down to verse 3, and then we're going to go to verse 11. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart from the world to the Father. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had handed all things over to him, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. Verse 11, Jesus knew the one who was betraying him. 
The point is this. Jesus was not surprised that he would be betrayed. He was not surprised when it would occur or that it would occur. Jesus knew the divine identity that he was the son of God. We pick that up from verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had handed all things over to him and that he had come forth from God, was going back to God. Jesus knew who he was. It was not a surprise to Jesus that he was going to be betrayed this night. It was not a surprise to Jesus that when he chose Judas, that Judas would not choose to follow him. Have you ever thought of that? It was not a shocker at this meal where it's like, where did that come from? Jesus knew it. And yet, he's going to wash his feet among the others during this act. Jesus knew he was the son of God. He knew he was the second person in the Trinity. He knew that God was the father. He knew that he was God the son, which, which was eternally begotten from the father. He knew that the Holy Spirit proceeded from the father and himself eternally. One of the biggest heresies that people get off the mark in Christianity or false teaching or false teachers is this. They diminish the divinity of Jesus Christ in his incarnate form. Do you understand what I mean by that? If you lessen the deity of Jesus Christ, such as he didn't know, you have actually diminished and you have created a falsehood, a false teaching. And most of the heresies, if not all of the heresies out there, have a wrong identity of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the divine son of God. He is not shocked at this meal by who's going to betray him. He is not shocked about what's going to happen that night. He's not shocked that he's going to be. In fact, this is what he came to do. This is not something that was thrust upon him. This is something that he proceeded willingly to follow the Father's plan. And so here we are at the dinner. The God incarnate becomes, go back to John 1, 14, remember? It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and behold and beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ had a beginning as only the flesh. He did not have a beginning as God. Do you see the difference? Flesh was added. Deity was always. And so we need to be so clear on the identity of Jesus Christ. Because if we get this wrong, everything else hinges off of it. Because we would know from God's word that when he became flesh, there was a point of time. But there has never been, nor will there ever be a point where God, the Son, did not exist or does not exist. Jesus' firm awareness of God's will and plan led to the obedience of his Father's plan. It's supper time. This is what he's been waiting for. Jesus was telling his disciples in advance both what was going to happen so that when it would happen, verse 19, he says this, I am telling you this 
now before it takes place so that when it does take place, that you may believe I am he. What is he saying? That you may believe that I am God. That's what that means. Do you know what the name of God is in the Bible? Exodus, go back. The I am. Do you catch the words? Jesus is telling them, I am. Do you remember what happens when he's walking across the water? The I am is here. Jesus is God. We can't get our heads around this. At least I can't. Here's God sitting at the table, reclining in the choice position as the master. His disciples assembled around him, reclining, and they have no clue what's happening. Not a clue. They think it's another meal. They think it's another Passover. Jesus has been saying all the way along, my hour has not come, my hour has not come, my hour has not. They didn't know what that meant. And here it goes. Verse 10. Jesus knows who's even his family members. And you are clean, but not every one of you. More to be said on this. Jesus also clarifies, I'm not speaking of you. I know, he said, for I have chosen whom I have chosen. Jesus' knowledge is firm, it's certain. But by contrast, man's knowledge is conditional and weak. Look to verse 7. You do not understand, or you do not realize now, but you will understand afterwards. Skip down to verse 12. So when he had washed their feet, taken off his garments, reclined at the table again, he said, do you know what I have done for you? Do you see the difference? Jesus' knowledge is firm. Man's knowledge, conditional. They have no clue what's happening right now. Perhaps you may feel a little bit like the disciples. Perhaps you might feel a little bit like Peter. I know I do. You can only imagine. I mean, can you picture what the disciples must have been saying to one another afterwards? That was our last meal. Why couldn't we ask this? Why couldn't we have known? And Jesus is very clear from start to finish that he has come to do the will of the Father. But how gentle, how kind that he slows the clock down to sit around a meal and then does the most shocking of shocking things that you could ever experience if you're his disciples. We don't have that context. Look to verse 17. The knowledge and obedience theme comes up one more time, and this is absolutely critical that we get this. If you know these things, so again, conditional understanding, you are blessed if you do these things. Jesus gives one final point here that's actually a double conditional clause, which basically in English means this. If, if, then, then. Jesus says, if you know these things, what is he talking about here? If you know these things, everything that comes before there, blessed is the group if you do these things. Jesus is not saying you're blessed just to know. Knowledge in and of itself is not wisdom. And knowledge in itself is not obedience. Jesus turns to them and says, no, 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 no. You don't understand. You're going to understand. But even when you do understand, you're only blessed if you 
do these things. So what are the these things? That's what we're going to spend our time with this morning. So Jesus is telling them the path forward, the way upwards is downward. And instead of just saying that, he does something that they'll never forget, ever. So let us look to what Christ does. Let's go to verse 4. Then he pours, Jesus, water into the wash basin and begins to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which he had tied around himself. The towel around himself is the uh, servanthood, out attire. Once again, the servant that was supposed to do this is supposed to be the servant that's a Gentile servant, a non-Jew. And here is not a Jew, but the Jew of Jews, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who puts a towel around his waist, gets up from the choice position and gets low. Verse 6. So he comes to Peter. God bless Peter. And he says to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? But Jesus answers and says to him, what I am doing, you do not realize, but you will understand afterwards. Jesus lowers himself as a model for his followers. True greatness is found in true humility. Jesus deserves the choice seat. He deserves to be served. Instead, what we read is that Jesus gets up and gets low. Jesus, the guest of honor in in someone's house, he is not supposed to wash their feet at all. And yet, Not even his disciples considered their master's dignity. Now, you may be judging the disciples. They wouldn't even have thought that that was their role. And yet, here is Jesus. Now, Luke 22, 24, if you have your Bibles, I want you to flip over to there. You might be thinking that the disciples are having a wonderful conversation around the dinner table. But let's go and peer into a parallel account in the book of Luke and see what they're chatting about around the Last Supper. And here we go. So, the Lord's Supper, and we're going to pick it up in verse 24. Who is the greatest is the title. And there arose among them also a dispute as to which of them was regarded to be the greatest. You got the context? So, Jesus, I picture, now this is me wondering how he did this, wondering when he did this. But here's what I think might be wrong. I think Jesus, maybe even at this precise moment, then just slowly gets up. As they're debating and disputing who's the greatest, who's the greatest, and Jesus attires himself as a servant and gets in the posture to wash his disciples' feet. Whether that is my thinking, what is 100% certain, is that's what they're arguing about, and what Jesus does in the midst of that is a game changer. Verse 27 in Luke 22 continues, For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table? Or the one who serves. It is not the one who reclines, 
but I am among you as the one who serves. That's the context of what Jesus is now going to display, not just with his words, but with his actions. Maybe some of you know the singer and the songwriter Michael Card. He describes this moment beautifully. Listen to his words. This is a pivotal moment in that Jesus finally gives up on words. He has told them numerous parables about slaves, but now he will portray the most humiliating of slave roles, the washing of the feet, even after three long years, and often after bizarre and indescribable behaviors. The disciples are befuddled by the inappropriate behavior that leaves them speechless. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus rises from his choice position at the table. Jesus disrobes. He wraps a servant towel around his waist. He fills a wash basin. And then he begins to wash the feet of his followers in an amazing act of servanthood. In this world, disciples never washed each other's feet. That was only the servant's work, and now the master's doing it, Sinclair Ferguson adds. And so, here's the incarnate God, and here comes the very act of cleansing. But do you understand what he's actually doing? For Jesus actually says to them, you do not understand now, but you will understand later. Cleansing has a duplicity of meaning. But let's dive into it to understand what's actually happening. So let's look back into verse 6 in our primary text in John 13, verse 6. So he comes to Peter and he says to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered and says to him, what I am doing, you do not realize now, but you will understand afterwards. Cleansing, point four on your outline. I'm so encouraged the Lord's patience with Peter. And then I'd look at myself. As I said to you, we're gazing at Christ and I'm gazing at myself right now saying, I am way slower than Peter. My life is way more obstinate than Peter's. I am so often not doing what I should do, saying what I should say, serving as I should serve, living as I should live, loving as I should love as a Christ follower. Maybe you're like me. What we lose in the verbiage here of the text is the expression of the body language of Christ. You've heard the expression body language, of course, many times. When Jesus Christ gets up, I picture here that there's an intensity in the eyes to Peter, right? Lord, are you going to wash my feet? What does he say? You, I don't know what your translation is, but in the LSV, and one of the reasons I wanted to use the LSV for this text is this, you will not wash my feet, dash, ever, exclamation mark. This is an emphatic, you're not going to wash my feet, Jesus. And Jesus turns to him and says, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no place in me. Paraphrasing. What does that mean? Under cleansing, the first point is salvation. Washing is synonymous with salvation. For it comes, we know from verse 8, from the cleansing from God. It's not something that Peter or we bring to the table. 
to which the believer is to turn their lives back to Christ in praise and service. Association with the master comes from obedience to the master and obeying the commands from the master. Peter responds, showing his heart, desiring to obey the Lord and demonstrate his love for his master. Look to verse 9. This is my favorite part of Peter's response. Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. To which Jesus says to him in verse 10, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean and you are clean. So here's the question. If he is clean, why does Jesus wash his feet? Have you thought of that question? Because it seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? You're clean. What does he mean? Second part under cleansing is sanctification. Now that's a technical term, which means we that are our old selves, sinners, are in a process of conformity through the power of the Spirit to become more like our Savior Christ in a progressive journey through our lives. It's other places in the Bible you read this as what? Fruit. Are we growing in our fruit? Do we resemble our Lord Jesus Christ? And so here we are. This is a reference in sanctification. Jesus is not done with Peter. And although he affirms his salvation, and praise God, can you imagine how he must have felt once he understood what that actually meant afterwards? Peter must have been like, wow, when he said that, that's actually what it meant. But not all of you. Jesus is not done with Peter. This is a progressive process of sanctification. It's quite unlike the salvation, which is instantaneous and God-initiated. The Holy Spirit's involved in the sanctifying work in our lives and would be in their lives eventually. And so Jesus continues in verse 10 with something quite shocking. He says this, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Now that must have been interesting. I mean, we we read this, we know this. Sometimes we hear this and we think, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. What in the world would he have been thinking at that moment? Okay, wait, this is our inner council. This is our disciples. And you have just told me that you're clean. Praise God, I am. He doesn't know what it means. But not all of you, what does that mean? Well, the story goes on. Jesus was not surprised by his betrayer. Look to verse 11. For he knew the one who was betraying him, and for this reason he said, not all of you are clean. So in the act of foot washing, Jesus has shown the disciples three truths. Ready? Salvation. He is to be their savior. Two, he is going to be, must be, is their example. Three, but they had room to grow in their godliness, and so do we. And Peter probably didn't catch any of what was actually being said there, real time. I'm pretty confident afterwards he probably reflected back to this and maybe the conversation at the end of the book of John as we read in the fishing episode and probably went, oh, that's what he meant. We're on the other side of the resurrected Christ, praise God. 
We have different lenses. We can see this now and we can hear this and we can see the complete canon from old to new and realize that's what it means. But this is real time. And so verse 12 is critical to this passage. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, pause. Do you get what just happened? Do you get it? This is the Lord. He has now put himself back in the choice position after an amazing act of servanthood and instructed them the way up is down. You don't get it, but you will. And he goes back and now we see the exaltation of Christ. He gets up, he kneels down, he washes, he resumes his place because of the humiliation of God's word. And in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, the father exalts him to the name above every other name. And that's who we serve. He gets up after he got down. Whether or not you believe the Lord Jesus Christ is Christ, it doesn't matter because guess what? He is. Whether or not you understand that he's the divine son of God doesn't make a difference. He is. But it makes a world of difference to your future. And it made a world of difference to his disciples that night. Judas was washed by the Lord. He resumes his place at the table. But John 6, 64 affirms and tells us that Christ was not surprised. In fact, God's word states that Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that would not believe and who it was that would betray him. You catch the double part to that. That means he knows his family, but he also knows who's not his family. But here's the betrayer. Jesus is not the one in question this night. Rather, it's a family question. We, our lives, must be in question this morning to determine, are we really part of the family of God? Because we can dress up nice, we can show up nice, we can act nice, we can talk nice. It means not a hill of beans if you die without the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, understanding who he is. Truth rightly understood produces action and reaction. Let me repeat that. Truth rightly understood produces action and reaction. So who is Christ? False teaching. Profound heresies come from lessening the divine identity of Christ. Either God was reclining at the table as God or he was a liar. There's nothing in between. It's not that he is a nice guy. You understand that, right? There's no such thing as Jesus just being a nice guy, a good guy, a smart guy, a prophet. Either he is the Lord or he is a liar. And that's the dividing line. So if you live lives where he's just an influence to your life, but not the Lord of your life, then we're no better. Our lives need to be conformed to our example of our Savior. Jesus painted a vivid picture. He goes back to the Old Testament. Do you remember in Isaiah, the suffering servant? Let me just read to you 
one little bit here. This is what's going to come in the next day. You ready? Surely our griefs, verse 50, uh, chapter 53, verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteem him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for iniquities. And by his wounds we were healed. This is Christ. That's who is at the dinner table. Here we are 2,000 years later, gazing into the upper room, trying to catch a glimpse of Christ. I hope that you catch it. I hope it transforms you. I hope you think of the Last Supper differently. I hope you think of the act of foot washing more precisely now. Supper's ready. The table's set. So, let's land the plane. A believer, a non-believer, makes the world a difference. The Lord knows you can fool everyone else, but you cannot fool the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows our hearts. He sees our lives. And let me briefly offer the choice food which does not perish or spoil. Two parts to the finish. If you are not part of the family of God, he's there. You're going to probably go celebrate mothers today. I hope you do. You're going to probably have a meal with them. I hope you do. The Lord has descended and made low for your sins and for mine. Indecision is not a decision. It's irrational. Either you believe these words to be true from God's holy word and devote your lives to Christ, or you'll live to please yourself. What's your decision? There's no neutral ground. Perhaps you have questions. Let me give you an offer. I'm alone today. That means I want to stay as long as you want to stay to talk about God. So if you want to take time today, afterwards, call me, spend time. I would be honored to talk to you further about why Christ is king and why he is the Lord and why he's the suffering servant. It would be an honor. Perhaps you have questions. I'll do my best to answer. Nothing is more critical than we get this right. Nothing is more joyous than when a lost sinner repents and turns to Christ. There's great rejoicing in heaven, we know from God's word, when one turns. Let me be part of that journey with you. It would be an honor. There's things I can't answer, but what I can answer is who Christ is. If you're saved, trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, if you have grieved over your sins, repented for them, if you've turned from them, not perfectly, but patternistically, then praise the Lord today for what he's done. But he's not done with you yet. He wasn't done with Peter, and he's surely not done with me. So how do we apply it to the rest of us? Blessing, described in verse 17, comes from hearing and obeying. Blessing comes from putting what we read and learning into God's word into practice. Blessed are you if you do them. Jesus is master. He's not greater than the one who sent him. Jesus sets the servant example. The disciples are described as slaves. They're not greater than the master. Therefore, by extension, we, disciples of Christ, are to emulate. So how do we actually practically do it? Three parts. If you take notes, this is what I want you to please take notes in. Okay. Let me read to you one quote first. 
But I want you to think about this this morning deeply as you walk away from here. When you leave the room this morning, what is the atmosphere of your life? People will comment on this. Sinclair Ferguson adds in his book, The Lessons from the Upper Room. This is especially true of Christians because in the context that are obvious, we're an obvious minority. But does the aroma of Christ linger from you when you leave the room? Does the aroma of Christ linger from you when you leave the room? Has your life been fragrant with humility and grace? Does, did it say, however wordlessly, I am Christ's bondservant, and therefore I want to serve you? So the question I want you to write down is, what is your aroma? Do we resonate Christ, or do we resonate the world? Do I? That's the question. I want to look at my own life this week and and deeply think through that. And here's the three parts. Communion with God is the first part. Prayer matters. God's word teaches us from the book of Psalms. Teach me, Lord, knowledge and good judgment. Psalm 119.66. Are we communing with God daily? Are we looking to God truly? Is he directing our steps truthfully? Or are we acting and is God just an add-on? We're moving forward and then, Lord, hey, while I'm doing this, as we look for a home, as we look for a relocation, as we look to serve the Lord, is it an add-on to say, okay, God, I'm already there. You know, please bless this. Or am I bathing my life truly to serve the Lord and trying to honor him with my steps? That's an introspective question that we need to think about. You have access to the throne of God. Do we understand what that means? They, that night, saw their Lord get betrayed and then crucified and then rose. But now that we have the spirit that indwells in us and the tent and the curtain has been torn from top to bottom, we have unfettered access to the Lord of Lords and King of Kings every day, real time, and he wants to commune with you. So are we communing with the Lord? God's word. Under point one, sub point. So prayer matters. God's word matters. Time in God's word daily. This week I was sitting at breakfast at the hotel. And I looked across. And at the other end of the restaurant I saw a guy with a big Bible open. And I thought, well, that's interesting. So I went over to him. His name is Ross. And I said, are you a pastor? I thought it would be a natural question. Because you don't see Bibles open in a lot of restaurants. I don't know if you noticed that. And his Bible was marked up from top to bottom and circled and footnotes. And his response was, no, I'm a business owner. So I looked at him and I said, tell me about this. You love God's word? He says, I've loved it since I've been a teenager. So what brought you into town? I'm here to support a friend who's opening a business. Does that what we look like when we're out in public? Not just the pastor, not just the elders, but are we proud of God's word? A pastor back home in Canada 
has on the back of his laptop, interrupt me about Christ. (laughs) Seriously. His name is Tyrell. And Pastor Tyrell spends his days preparing his sermons in a local Dutch coffee shop so that people will talk to him about Christ. Last Sunday, I met a gentleman at the church there who I met at the coffee shop with Tyrell. I mean, what's the aroma of our life look like? Are we proud of the Lord? Or are we begrudgingly, quietly, discreetly followers of Christ? And that's looking at myself. But I hope it applies to you. Third point. So 1A, 1B, I guess really it's two points. Walking in humility matters. So we have prayer matters. God's word matters. So speaking of God's word, before I finish on the humility, do we love God's word? Do we really love God's word? Then consume it. If I was to challenge you how many hours you spend watching shows, spending time in other pursuits, how many times have you read the Bible cover to cover? That's where God's word to us is found. Now, there's parts of the Bible that we all know are tough for slugging. I get it. Trust me. But if this is the word of the Lord that's given to us, let's consume it accordingly. Let's live lives accordingly. Let's digest it accordingly. Let's hunger for it. Because what you feed yourself, you will hunger And in this society where now things are fast and furious, the discipline of reading, the discipline of ingesting God's word needs to be trained and taught. Just do it, please. Lastly, humility matters. Some food for thought. C.J. Mahaney, who is our son and daughter-in-law's pastor in Louisville, Kentucky, wrote a book called Humility, True Greatness. He gave me this book. And... uh, I love CJ. He says, did you know that on average, on average, each of us spends about 25 or speaks about 25,000 words a daily? Now, some of you speak more, some of you speak less. A lot of language is flowing out of our mouths every day, and it has an impact on those around us. But how much of that flow is fulfilling God's intended purpose for our speech? How much of it reflects pride, pride, rather than gospel-motivated humility? This is my final page. What then does it mean for us to understand him and follow him? It means not standing on our dignity, but taking a servant's towel. It means not standing at all, but being willing to kneel. It means not standing on our dignity, but taking a servant's towel and do the menial tasks. It means being willing to be a slave for Jesus' sake. Spurgeon adds, from a sermon called Humility and How to Get It, oh, the stoop of the Redeemer's amazing love. Let us henceforth contend how we can go side by side with him. But remember, when we have gone to the lowest, listen to this, he descends lower still. 
so that we can truly feel the very lowest place is too high for us because he has gone lower still. None of us deserve the grace of Jesus Christ. Remember, dear friends, the way up is down. When we descend low, we need to remember our Lord has descended further lower for us when we were still sinners. So, what's the aroma of your life going to look like today? What's the aroma of your life going to look like when the next problem happens today? Do we reflect Christ, not publicly, but privately? What do our hearts look like? So this is an x-ray exercise for you and for me. Let's look at our lives and let's conform our lives to be more like our Savior Christ. Let's praise him, proclaim him, glorify him with our lives and our words. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, may we this morning be not only hearers of your word, but doers of your word. Your word is precious. You are precious. May the words of our mouth, the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. May our lives be a lighthouse of faith so that there is a stark contrast to the world around us. If any of you this morning are considering faith in Christ, if there's a stirring in your heart, if something is challenging you either for your authenticity of your faith or if there's a hearer that has not come to faith, Lord, I pray that it would please you to save them. Use your spirit to convict them of their sins and may they turn to you in faith, the Lord of lords, the King of kings. Help us as the body of Christ to be the aroma of Christ in a world that needs that truly. Compel our hearts for the lost. Conform our lives to be more like your precious son, Christ. And it's in whose glorious and holy name we pray all of these things. Amen.